Let's now open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 to 9. Our passage is verses 4 to 9, but we'll read from verse 1 to understand the context. Hebrews 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commanded in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham, and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We know it is the word of God. And we pray now that you will draw us to yourself, to the gospel, to the true gospel, and enable us to have knowledge and insight that will increase our faith, that will give us stronger conviction about the truths that we believe, that we will be bolder in our witness and will also live according to this word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in this section of the book of Hebrews, from chapter 7 onward into chapter 10, from 7 and into the middle of chapter 10, we note that our apostle is focused on teaching us correctly about the real purpose of the old covenant in relation to the new covenant, or Moses' relationship to Jesus. That is his focus. And the focus is more theological. He's trying to make sure we have correct beliefs because he knows, based on correct beliefs on who God is and what the true gospel is, we will live according to that correct belief. Our behavior, it will be a consequence of proper belief. This is why he's going to focus on this fact. And he's doing it for his own audience because they had people infiltrating their myths, claiming that Moses had a different covenant and even a better covenant than whatever Jesus came to do. And even that they did not understand the distinction or the relationship correctly between Abraham and Moses. Because they misunderstood that, they misunderstood the purpose of Christ's coming. And therefore they were in jeopardy of believing a false gospel, believing in a false God, believing in a false way of salvation, believing that there were different ways of salvation, one way for Jews, another for Gentiles, or one way in one period of time and another way of salvation in another period of time. They believed these kinds of things. As well, they also were susceptible to believing in works salvation, works righteousness, that they could do any number of things, or their 
good deeds, if they outweighed their bad deeds, 51% to 49% on the day of judgment, they will get into heaven. Or they believe something like if they did this one thing, like circumcision, or this one thing, like this work here or that work there, if they did just the one thing, then that itself would guarantee their spot in heaven. These are the kinds of false teachings that were going on in their midst. But those false teachings are not new or were not new in that time because in the Old Testament, the prophets faced the same. And as well, in the time of church history, from the time of the apostles to our day, and even in our day, these kinds of false beliefs are widespread. People think that they can have many ways of salvation. People think that Moses' way of salvation was different than Jesus' way of salvation. They think that the Bible has different periods of time where salvation and the gospel works differently. They think that today you can be saved by doing a good work, doing just one thing, whatever the preacher or the pastor, the minister has to say and expect of them to do, if they do just that one thing, then they're okay with God. And on the day of judgment, they will not face the wrath of God, but they will go to heaven. This is a perennial problem, a perennial heresy that people think that there is some way of salvation apart from Christ, apart from the knowledge of Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. So, our apostle in this chapter takes pains to show that Moses and the Levitical priesthood that Moses established, that that is subservient, that that is subordinate to the promises that God gave to Abraham. He takes pains to prove that point. And in order to do so, he has to first say that Abraham is lower than Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the highest, and then Abraham, and then Moses and Levi. Moses, Aaron, and Levi after that. Therefore, by that definition, by that logic, if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and Abraham is superior to Moses, why would we imagine that whatever laws Moses instituted would subvert what Abraham knew, what Abraham believed, the promises that Abraham trusted in? Why would we assume that? And if Abraham knew that he was lesser than Melchizedek, if Abraham knew he was lesser than Melchizedek, and that the promises given to Abraham would be fixed and sure, would not be changed, as it says in Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, that the promises to Abraham were unchangeable, fixed promises. They could not be violated, they could not be breached, they could not be broken in any way. If those promises were like that, then why would we think that Moses, coming later than Abraham in history, that he would have another way or a better way of salvation. This is the logic of this chapter. This is the logic, actually, of not only this chapter, but many places in the Bible, such as Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapters 3 and 4. This is the logic of the Bible, that there is one way of salvation from the beginning of time till the end of time. Now, let's see his part, this part of the argument, verses 4 to 10, how he elaborates on the argument. 
We know from the previous paragraph, verses 1 to 3, that the identity of Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, and Abraham recognized that. That's the main point of verses 1 to 3. Abraham recognized the identity of Melchizedek to be superior to himself. He subordinated himself to Melchizedek. So this subordination, or this submission, this obedience, this recognition is elaborated in verses 4 to 10. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Here he's seeking to prove this, to show that this man or this person to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. We note that he calls him Abraham. Abraham is more identified with him as the father of the faith, Genesis or the faithful of Genesis chapter 17. Abraham's name was changed because he would be the first one of a whole line of people, both physically and spiritually, who would be attached to God, who would be attached to God through Christ. If they believed in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, they would belong to God in Christ and have salvation. And Abraham became the first one, both in the physical sense, this is the line of the Jews coming from Abraham, or the Hebrew people coming from Abraham, as it says in Genesis 14, 13, that's the first time the Bible says, Abram the Hebrew, Abram the Hebrew. From that point on, the Hebrew race is traced from Abraham. But this one, not only was he in terms of his physical um, ancestry right there, starting there, Abraham, but spiritually, Throughout the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and throughout the rest of the Bible, even in into the New Testament, it is Abraham who is the model and perfect example of faith. And whatever God promised him, not only belongs to him, but belongs to us, if we believe in the same God, in the same gospel, in the same Christ that Abraham trusted. If we believe in the same one, what God promised to him belongs to us. That's why he calls him here Abraham. Further, he is the patriarch. He's the patriarch because we're all sons of God through faith in Christ. Or we are all sons of Abraham, offspring of Abraham through Christ. This is the argument throughout Galatians chapters 3 and 4. We are in Christ because we have the same faith that Abraham has. And we are children of Abraham, not children of anyone else, but children of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham. That's why he is the patriarch. So, after showing that Abraham is a man of esteem, in verse 4, known as Abraham the patriarch, he also says, compares Abraham to Melchizedek. Notice how great this person Melchizedek was, because Abraham gave him a tenth of the choicest spoils. A tenth of the choicest spoils. That's a tithe. Tithing is a tenth. After Abraham in Genesis 14 conquered his enemies and recovered his nephew and other people and possessions, he's returning back from the battle, victorious, and Abraham gives a tenth of the choicest spoils. 
In Genesis 14, it does not call it choice spoils, the choices. However, by definition, the first fruits, the best of what we have is given to God. The best of what we have. And with Abraham, even when he returned from battle, he knew that what he got from the spoils of warfare, what he got by earning, by working and conquering his enemies, that what he first got from that, the choices of what he got belongs to God. Abraham knew that. He did not have to be commanded that in the context of Genesis 14. It was already a part of his mentality. It was a part of his mind. It was a part of his life to give to God a tenth. And not just a tenth, but the choices of the tenth. He understood that that was the case. Then, why is that significant? Well, it shows that Abraham is submitting to Melchizedek and thereby submitting to God. He is obeying God. Verse 5 further clarifies. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Now, the way tithe works, here he says, it's a commandment in the law. It's a commandment in the law that the Levites were to receive a tenth from the people. They were to receive it from the people. Even though Abraham already practiced tithing, they themselves were expected to tithe as well, even though they were descendants of Abraham. It wasn't enough that the patriarch did it. It was incumbent upon them to do it too, for them to do it just as the patriarch did it. And why? Because this is a commandment in the law. Here's an example. In the book of Numbers, Numbers 18, Numbers 18, 21. Numbers 18, 21 says, And to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, it says here that to the sons of Israel, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. If we keep on reading till the end of the chapter, he further explains that it was the people of Israel from all the tribes who were to give a tenth of what they earned, their possession, to the Levites, because the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they were installed, they were anointed and appointed, commissioned by God to serve in the temple and in the tabernacle. This was their duty. So their livelihood was not to be from farming. It was not to be from uh, working as a carpenter. It was not in any other field of work. It was to be in the priesthood. So the people were to give a tenth of what they had to the Levites so the Levites could have a livelihood in the ministry. Now, this is a commandment in the law, in the law of Moses, Numbers chapter 18. So, he says, just as the Levites and the people of Israel understood this, they understood that they were supposed to do this even though they were descendants of Abraham. But notice verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them 
collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. It says that the one whose genealogy is not traced from them. Remember, it all starts with Abraham. Melchizedek is not a a relative of Abraham. Remember we said that the best choice of the various opinions on the identity of Melchizedek was that he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But if we even grant that he was someone greater, because we're told that in Hebrews 7, and it's even implied that in Genesis 14, someone greater than Abraham, that's all we need to know. He was greater than Abraham, and his genealogy is not traced from them. Melchizedek is not a relative of Abraham, and not a relative of Moses and Levi and Aaron, not a relative of any of them, Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. That's an argument to show that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, and Abraham knew it. Abraham gave a tenth to him. Further, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. All of this is in Genesis 14. 14 verses 18 to 20. Right there, that Melchizedek, after this return from battle, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. In the law, such as the Aaronic blessing of Numbers 6, 24 to 26, it is the duty of the priests to bless the people. It's not the people who bless the priest, but the priest who blesses the people, because the, the priest is greater in rank and in authority, in position, than the people because they have this called duty, called by God duty, to act in certain ways as mediators for the people before God. That's why it says, he blessed the one who had the promises. He blessed Abraham. Even though Abraham had the promises, Abraham had the promises that he would have many physical descendants, that he would have many spiritual descendants, that he would be forgiven of his sins because of his single descendant, Christ, who would be his son, great, great, great grandson, all the way down the line, that he would be the savior of the world, the mediator of the world, the only one by whose death and resurrection could obtain our salvation. That's the only way. Abraham received that promise. And also, eternal life. Resurrection from the dead, being in the presence of God forevermore. All of these, Abraham knew, he believed, these were the promises God gave to him. Now, if Abraham had all of these, and he's the first one to have all of these, and becomes the model of perfect faith, of good faith, right faith, genuine faith, faith in the gospel, he had all these promises, yet... He was blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed him, which also shows Abraham knew that Melchizedek was superior to him. Verse 7, But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Does anybody dispute that? We know that that's the case. We said the ironic blessing of number 6, 24 to 26, that's the case. We know that to be the case whenever Isaac blessed 
his sons, right? He blessed Jacob. He cursed Esau. He blessed Jacob and cursed Esau. We know that to be the case with Jacob. Jacob blessed his 12 sons in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter uh, 49. He blessed his 12 sons. We know this to be the case throughout the Bible, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. So there's no dispute. So if there's no dispute on that, how is it that we could imagine, how is it that we could imagine that whatever comes after Abraham is better than Abraham and better than Melchizedek? We can't. That's why he says in verse 8, and in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Verse 8, this case, mortal men receive tithes. Who is this? Who does he mean by mortal men? He means the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. He means they receive tithes and they are mortal men. They receive them because they need temporarily during their life, they need a livelihood, they need sustenance, they need a maintenance in order to live and to raise their families. They need that. If they receive them, if they receive tithes, notice that case, meaning in the case of Melchizedek and Abraham, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. He received those tithes, Melchizedek did, even though According to the account of Genesis, there is no death of Melchizedek. There is no death of Melchizedek, which means when he received them, he didn't receive them because Melchizedek needed them. He received them in reference to these covenants. He received them in reference to these promises. He received them in reference to the person and work of Christ to signify and to anticipate that when Christ comes, Christ's priesthood will be in accordance with the order of Melchizedek, not Levi, not with the uh, priesthood of Aaron, nothing in relation to Moses, but in relation to Melchizedek. So if Christ comes and he has the priesthood of Melchizedek, then whatever Christ says, whatever Christ does, must be superior to Moses. Verse 9, and, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, in terms of chronology, we know the chronology in the biblical account, in the narrative of the Bible, it begins with Adam, then it goes to Enoch, it goes to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And Moses is primarily what we find in Exodus to Deuteronomy. And then when we get to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read of David. He's the next major person in the Old Testament. David in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. So that is the way it is self-evident that chronologically and canonically as we read, that that is the sequence. Now, in terms of the number of years, from Adam until Noah or Noah's flood, we have 1,600 years, roughly speaking. 1,600 years. 
Now, how would people have been saved in that, that period of time? Ask that question. And then from the time of Noah to Abraham, there would have been a couple of hundred years at least from the time of the flood to Noah, um, from the time of Noah and the flood to Abraham would have been about 300 years. And then Abraham about 2000 BC. Abraham, 2000 BC. From Abraham to Moses, Moses lived in 1500 BC. We have 500 years. Therefore, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, Moses is 1500 BC, Adam is 4000 BC, and we have these other patriarchs. This means that for that long of a period of time, from 1500 BC, Moses' time, to 4000 BC, we have 2,500 years of human history. 2,500 years of human history. How were people saved? Were they saved by obeying the law of Moses? No. They were saved by other means. Not the law of Moses. The law itself was not their salvation. It could not have been because it did not exist for 2,500 years. In fact, when the law of Moses comes, it is subservient. It is a servant. It is a helper to understand, to elaborate, to explain what the promises of God are that existed before Moses and that will exist during the time of Moses' law, that is 1,500 years uh, B.C. until the time of Christ's death and resurrection, and then after the time of Christ. And that one way of salvation is in the gospel of Christ. Anticipating the gospel of Christ, or as we do, we look back and understand in history the gospel has been accomplished. This is the way of salvation. And to prove this last point, that it is one way and that that which comes later is subservient, he says in verses 9 and 10, that Levi, who received tithes from the rest of the people, the tribe of Levi received tithes from the rest of the people, Levi himself, 500 years after Abraham, paid tithes when Abraham paid tithes which means Levi is lesser than Abraham. And the way that this happened was that he, Levi, was still in the loins of his father, Mel uh, when, loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi had not existed as a person or as a tribe, had not existed and would not exist for hundreds of years after Abraham. He did not exist and the tribe did not exist at until hundreds of years after Abraham. If that is the case, then Levi is in the loins of Abraham, just like we are in the loins of Adam. We are in the loins of Adam, so when Adam first sinned, we also sinned in him. We were in his loins. And in this case, the tithes, when Abraham paid the tithes, Levi also paid the tithes, so Levi is subservient to Abraham, and Abraham is subservient to Melchizedek. This is the line of argument. We know that to be the case with all of us in Adam because of Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 12 to 21 explains, Romans 5, 12 
to 21 explains that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We sinned in him. All mankind sinned when Adam sinned. That's on that example, a negative example. And there are also other negative examples that the future generation suffers because of what the previous generation did, such as the obliteration of the Canaanites. The Canaanites, men, women, and children, were to be killed because of what they were doing. Their sins in that generation, the sins of the adults, but also the sins of the Canaanites in previous generations. They were to be destroyed under Joshua's leadership, and many of them were. That happened then. How about the sin of Achan? The sin of Achan also happened in terms of the father's sins impacting negatively his own children. Because when Achan in Joshua chapter 7, 6 and 7, when he sinned and he stole some of the gold and a mantle and, and things from the Canaanites, when he wasn't supposed to do that, he was supposed to put everything under the ban. He did not. And therefore, he and his household were all killed. Now, this is the case also in terms of the tithing. That's the argument that the apostle is making. Now, in order to deal with skeptics who say, well, that's all unfair. Well, we also understand that in the Bible, not only is the curse or the obligation, obligation in this passage, but the Blessing also is transferred from generation to generation, is it not? When Israel conquered the land of Canaan, when they conquered the land of Canaan, those conquerors inherited fields that they did not work for. They inherited those fields that they did not work for. And not only did they inherit them, but their children did. The 20-year-old soldiers, they had to be at least 20-year-olds to serve in the military. When they were 20, and they were on the battlefield, and they conquered the Canaanites, they're infants. If they were married, they had babies, they had infants. The infants didn't do anything, and yet the infants inherit all of the olive yards, they inherit the vines, they inherit all of the crops, even though they did no work. They inherited a blessing. And then ultimately, in the person of Christ, when Christ accomplishes for us something that we could not do, we inherit that too. We inherit it because of our association with Christ, because we are attached to Christ. There are many, many examples of the blessing side of how this corporate guilt and corporate blessing is throughout the whole Bible. And that's what his argument is here. Levi was less than Abraham, and Abraham was less than Melchizedek. Therefore, the conclusion... The conclusion should be, not only in their case, but also in our case. Let us not think that the law of Moses, or any part of the law of Moses that expected obedience, that if we would just obey this or that law, this great law or this lesser law, if we would just obey it in one way or faithfully for our whole life, then our salvation is secure, that we are good people that we don't need Christ. We don't need to hear about Christ. We don't need to know about Christ. We don't need to preach Christ to ourselves and to other people. Christ is unnecessary. We cannot believe that. That's what he's arguing against here because 
The false teachers in their midst were teaching, listen, it might be good and well that Jesus came into the world and that he did this and that, he did some good things, he helped the people here or there, but you don't really need to believe in him. Don't believe in him because Moses is sufficient. Believe in these laws and that is your salvation. Put your confidence in the animal sacrifices. Put your confidence even in your tithing. Put your confidence in something else that the law of Moses teaches us to do, like circumcision or keeping the Sabbath or any number of things. Do those things and your salvation is secure. Don't worry about it. There's no need to believe in Christ. There's no need to believe that Jesus died on your behalf. They were teaching that among the Jews and they were even, some of them, believing this among the Gentiles. Gentiles believe one way, Jews believe another way. They had a mix and match approach to the way of salvation. They did not have a solitary, unified, single, absolute approach to the way of salvation, which is, there is only one living God. There is only one true God. There is only one Savior. There is only one gospel. There is only one salvation. There is only one way of forgiveness of sins. There is only one way to eternal life, to be in heaven, in the presence of our God, forever and ever. There is only one of all of these. This is what the Bible teaches again and again and again. And that's what he's arguing here. Let's believe the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.